Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Sunit Bhatt about purpose-driven outsourcing. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am so happy to welcome Sunit Bhatt. Sunit is the president and board chair of Boulder. Uh, He's also the author of Dream Village and the founder, Where Kids Build Better Tomorrows. Sunit has been working for over 20 years, and as a result of that, and he says really not much else, he's gathered some experiences he's happy to share. So uh, uh, with that understated introduction, um, I, I believe your, your, your humility is, uh, is preceding you. Sunit, welcome to The Indispensables. Uh, Bruce, thanks for having me. It's an honor. And again, I love the content you're putting out there and some of the people you featured have just been outstanding. So it's just great to be here. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad uh, to have you, and I'm so glad uh, to learn more about Boulder and to learn more about you and your leadership. Tell us uh, your story. What's your basic story? How did you get to where you are? It's it's a again with 20 years. It's a it's a bit long and and circuitous. I think I've always known that I wanted to do something mission driven, uh, and by mission driven, I mean uh, making an impact. It took me a long time to get to where I am today. And it was really just a number of experiments. So when I went to undergrad at Rutgers, you know, I very quickly after a semester or two realized that academics wasn't my thing. I didn't feel like I was learning anything. Uh, So I just started doing a bunch of, you know, clubs, internships, uh, projects, independent studies, anything I could do to get more practical experience was the thing I learned. I realized that I learned the most doing that. Internships led me to big company work. So I worked at Prudential and then Dun & Bradstreet, uh, rotational program at Prudential, Dun & Bradstreet, and very quickly learned that big companies weren't my thing uh, because you ended up being a number. I remember, you know, being 20, you know, I think 25, managing my first team, having to go through a round of layoffs after September 11th and just crying in the back of the conference room, uh, which was you're not a good look professionally, but it didn't matter. I, I remember that, Sunit. I remember we all cried. Yeah. I mean, that, and having to like work through that and then also having to let people go just didn't make sense to me, uh, the, way that, the way it was handled. I uh, went to business school, uh, focused on social impact, realized that you know, I wanted to do something more meaningful. And I did a couple, again, a bunch of rotations when I was in business school. So I did microfinance in India, realized that I loved the work, but I couldn't connect with the people. The people I was meeting when I was doing this research in India were at such a different level of experience than me, poverty. There were things I just couldn't fathom coming from America. So I realized I wanted to do impact with something a little bit potentially closer to home uh, that was more tangible for me. And then I did uh, disaster relief with FEMA, uh, realized that working for the government uh, wasn't uh, something that was terribly exciting. We did post-Katrina housing remediation and like did some amazing proposal work only to have it go to the federal government and just sit there uh, and do nothing, which is very disheartening. But that would have that would have counted as mission-driven work, right? You just found it frustrating to navigate the FEMA bureaucracy? Oh yeah, you, you nailed it. I think there's tons of things that we can all do 
but it wasn't the right work for me. It is, there are certain people that are made for that. And I am honored and blown away by some of the folks who I've met that work in that space and do it incredibly well. One of my old bosses, the, you know, the mayor of, of Evanston, Steve Haggerty, uh, has just built this entire career on public service in local, state, and federal government. And he's just got an incredible mindset for it. Doesn't work for me. So I think you'll see like a, a, just a, a history of like running an experiment, trying something and closing a door and saying, you know, that's not the right thing for me. What's the next job? You see those experiments as building blocks? Oh yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. They're very deliberate experiments. There's a hypothesis going in uh, and there is a moment where you learn and say, okay, I think I've taken all I can from this. What's the next thing I need to learn? And that is prime. You know, the thing that jumped out for me after doing all those experiments to business school and with FEMA was that I didn't have enough practical business knowledge uh, that it, to apply. So I very quickly shifted to private equity, venture capital. I think between 2010 and 2018, I participated in something like 10 different transactions, which would be business sales or business acquisitions, uh, fundraising, you know, helped be on the leadership team that led over, you know, raised over $42.5 million, like have done a lot of stuff like that. And the benefit to where I am now is learned a lot and have now brought that back to with me to Boulder, which is this mission-driven global team building outsourcing company. And when we say mission-driven, it is we do great work. We're an outsourcing partner to some of the greatest brands in the world. But the thing we do differently is we focus on developing our team. So as opposed to historically outsourcing exploits, you know, people on the front lines, we actually invest a ton in hiring and developing and career planning with our team members. And then we give a percentage of our time and our money back to the communities where we live and work. And that's like, it's the perfect convergence of all of my experiences, public, private, uh, nonprofit, social, et cetera, bringing all those things together. It's been awesome. When did you found Boulder? So I'm not the founder of Boulder. And you mentioned uh, uh, stories being important. This is a story I want to tell. So uh, I met uh, the founder, David Sadowski, who's now my partner. I met him at a conference. I was speaking at this conference, hop off stage, and I meet this individual. And I will say kid in the most generous and kindest of ways. He's like 25 and I hop off stage and, and he tells me his story. And here's his story. His story is when he graduated from college, he moved a mentor of his, uh, Jeff, took him to the Philippines to build an outsourcing company. They build an outsourcing company. And after a few years of doing it, they have this moment of clarity where they look at each other and say, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Like this outsourcing company we're building in the Philippines it's really great for the companies that hire us because they save a ton of money and they're able they make a ton of, ton of money. It's great for us because our business is growing. But look at the people that are working for us. They're being exploited. They're not treated well. The salaries aren't great. Uh, they, and as a result of that, they have no loyalty to us. And actually, the end experience to the people hiring us is suffering. This is just wrong. And all of the wealth we're creating is going offshore. It's not staying in the communities where we live and work. So David and his, and his partner, Jeff, create this, and it sounds very like Jerry Maguire, but they write this manifesto and they say, we're going to change the way outsourcing is done. We're going to take care of our people. We're going to invest in the local communities. We're going to keep the wealth here as much as we can. 
and we're going to treat people well. We're going to do this differently. We're going to do that because we're good human beings. But we also believe if we do that, more companies are going to want to work with us on bigger picture, higher value work. So we think it's going to be a true like win-win for everybody, which doesn't always happen. Bruce, two weeks after they write this manifesto, David's mentor, Jeff, dies suddenly in the Philippines. So David is 25. He's in the Philippines. His mentor, he's away from everybody. His mentor and his whole vision and his inspiration for what they want to do dies. I would have run home. I would have been like, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm leaving this company. I've got to go somewhere else. Like, that's what, that's what I would have done. And instead, David decides uh, he's going to stay and he's going to honor Jeff and he's going to build this business. So he stays there and I meet him three months after he started Boulder. He tells me this story. And in like four hours, I'm like, hey, man, just what can I do to help? I join as an advisor. I start helping him with sales. I fall in love with what he's doing. I stayed as advisor to him for about three years. And then in January of last year, I joined him uh, full time. Uh, as president and board chair. So been with him since he started the company. And that's like, that, that's a powerful story of how he just, you know, made his way forward. Three clients, 18 people, we're now over 500 uh, and growing. Wow, that's just incredible. And do you, um, in those employees, um, is does that count the folks who are uh, the outsourcing talent? Yeah, absolutely. So that is the, the team members. The team members make up a bulk, a bulk of that 500 plus. So COVID has been fascinating for us because a year ago, we were 250 people in Manila. And in 48 hours, we had to flip everybody remote. And the second we sent everybody remote, we said, you know, there's no bounds. There's no geographical boundaries that constrain anymore. So in the past six months, we have expanded to Canada. We have teams in Canada, uh, Mexico, because that's where David has some family ties. Uh, South Africa, because that's where my other partner, Marie, has some family ties. And a second location uh, in the Philippines, where one of our, our country leaders is from. Uh, so now these people are, are spread across time zones and geographies, uh, literally around the world. All that in the past six months. Incredible. And what's the scope of the work that you do for your clients and customers? We look at it as there are things we do really well. So we are great at um, you know, taking processes and taking them to scale. So if you have a team that's performing, uh, it's highly functioning, and now you say, I want to take that to scale and I want to do that globally because I want to access new talent, I want to provide multi-language support, I want to uh, find cost-effective ways of doing it, and all of those reasons. So we take processes and we take them to scale. So if you have something that works, this can be sales, it can be customer support, it can be data science, uh, it can be design. You bring that to us and we are experts at understanding your culture, documenting your process, and then training new people to take that up and take it to scale. That's like one thing we do super well. The second reason companies come to us is they have hypotheses that they want to experiment, but they can't invest. They don't want to hire full-time against it. So they'll bring us like, bodies of work or questions they want to answer. And the questions can be anything from, hey, we want to try and do this podcast. Can you help us design it, edit it, and bring it to life? Or we think we need a B2B sales team. Can we run a four-month pilot with you to see if we actually need one? 
or we have this churn question. We want to understand churn for our clients. Can you help us dig in and understand that so we know what churn looks like for our clients? They have hypotheses. They can't invest the resources to onboard a full team to do it. They need to see results quickly to justify the investment. They'll bring us, uh, they'll bring us in to do it. And the last thing is where people say, hey, we actually want to build a team globally. So we have a team. Uh, we want to own that team, but can you help us build that team in the Philippines or South Africa or Mexico? We'll do that for them, where we are effectively their, um, their professional employee organization, professional employment organization, uh, but they run sort of all the performance stuff. That's when people come to us. So are you guys technically a, a PEO, at least in part? We are in part. We're, we're doing it more and more because that's the ask. Because look, now... I mean, the implicit and intrinsic, intrinsic ties that you have with your employees is more important than ever. So people come to us and say, yeah, help us find the team, hire them, et cetera. But we want to manage. We want them in our culture. We want them to be a part of our team. Um, so can you take care of some of the admin, find them a place to work, pay their set, like give us a mechanism to pay salaries globally, but anything else, they're our team. We want to, we want them to be a part of our team. Yeah, that's so interesting. And uh, and you must be bringing so much of your own experience to bear on these challenges, uh, but it sounds like you're also innovating every step of the way. Yeah, you have to, because you have to find ways. The world changes a lot. I mean, we're seeing it all the time now. And so constant innovation, um, and it's this, and that's why I think that the experiment, growth mindset, whatever you want to call it, but you have to find a way to balance the successes that you've had, acknowledge them, anchor in them so that you feel like I'm happy and proud about what you've done. But then very quickly, you have to be willing to say, okay, this isn't the end of the road for us. Like there is more to build and more to do. How do we solve the next problem? What's coming at us? And that, that's the best part of this because you're working across, you know, 50, 75, 100 different clients, each with their own unique problems. And what I love about the work we do slightly different than software is with software, you go in with a solution and you apply it to their problem. With us, we start with their problem and we identify the solution that's custom for them. And I love that so much more. Uh, I've done software for a long time, but I love it. So are you a software, uh, is is part of your background in software? Yeah, I've done a, I've been doing, you know, SaaS stuff uh, since before there was SaaS. Uh, yeah, I have a strong software background. A bigger background is taking industries and businesses that historically were not sort of software. They were more sort of just manual or backwards in a sense and modernizing them and making them more sort of subscription or, or, or revenue-based. And that's across a number of industries, right? Like compliance, HR compliance, uh, data, a bunch of things, ad tech, and sort of making them more subscription-based. That's probably been the bulk of my career. Got it. And so that's a business strategy, really. It is. And it's modernizing these businesses and, and helping them find, uh, yeah, def- 100% modernizing these businesses, right? I mean, when I was at Dun & Bradstreet, we built the small business division, right? And this was 2002. And D&B was, you know, credit reports, right? So you buy one credit report and like, that was it. There was no relationship. And the data in those reports was like impossible and foreign for a small business to understand. So we 
we're very early in one UI UX. So like taking the credit reports that were these horrible, you know, like horrible reports and turning them into beautiful visuals that a small business customer could look at and be like, okay, my credit score is bad or my credit score is good or this supplier is bad or I have this risk with like, you know, a blink of an eye. So that's like kind of early user experience work. Oh yeah, without a doubt. We were doing tons of tons of testing on that front on data visualization and ways to translate information that used to be complex into ways that anybody could consume. So that's like part of it. And the other part of it was subscription models. How do you get so many subscriptions? And I would sit in meetings with you know heads of finance and heads of accounting at Dun and Bradstreet, and we had to figure out a way to charge people for this. There was no subscription recurrent revenue, like revenue recognition when you charge somebody up front, but then recognize the revenue over the course of 12 months. Wasn't something Dun & Bradstreet had experience with. So we had to build that. And the second thing was, how do you mitigate the risk? So we actually, I, I looked up cell phone contracts because I was like, you get the cell phone for free, but you, if you exit a cell phone contract, they would hit you with a penalty so to cover the cost of the phone. So we had to build that into our models at Dun & Bradstreet, which is, hey, if, if someone signs up and they get all this value and they cancel inside of 90 days, we're going to charge them a fee to, to, to recoup the full value of the investment in that customer. So finding these like correlates was pretty, was, was pretty important. Yeah, that's incredible. And so with Boulder, um, it sounds like since you've been uh, at the helm, you've doubled the operation? Yeah, it's it's been wild. So to take a like a, even a half a step back, so when COVID hit, and this is like this is the benefit to mission driven company where you have a very clear set of values. So for us, you know, we have a, a something we call a total impact metric, and what that is typically when you hear talk to a startup, they talk about a north star and a north star metric, where it's like one metric drives the business. I hate those. Like I think they leave a lot out. So we have three metrics. We talk about our team members. We talk about heart, body, mind, soul. How is our team doing? We talk about client performance, and then we talk about impact. And we talk about them in that order. So team members come first because they should. Clients come next because they carry our business. But all of that is because of the social impact that we want to make. The reason I share that is when COVID hit, we just got super clear. We said, here are the two things that matter. For every decision we make as a business, two things matter. Team health and safety first, client health and success. We didn't talk about revenue. We didn't talk about anything. Those are the two things that mattered. And so as a result of that model, we had this really tense and tight set of constraints, which some people could look as limiting, but I looked at as clarifying, which were we have to keep everybody employed. We have to keep as many people employed as possible. The second thing is we are not going to force our clients to pay us if it's going to put them at financial risk. So we had clients where we had annual contracts. They had 30 people with us and we let them out. We were like, go take care of your business. We're going to take care of these people. We're going to find a way to do that. You're sort of playing the long game there um, and also living your values. We're living our values. And, and I think sometimes like maybe there's a long game. We lost 35 to 40% of our revenue in 30 days. 
and we absorbed it. We, you know, the team, like we had executive team give back salary. We had individual team members come to us and say, hey, we want to keep everybody employed. How can we help? And we set that mantra and that mission and we were able to keep the majority of people employed. Most of those clients haven't yet come back because the people we lost, the clients we lost are still affected by COVID. They are marketplaces and require physical like attendance or interaction with customers. We lost a lot of those people. So in a sense, the, the only long game we played was proving to our team members that they were the most important thing. And the trust that that built, we have been able to call back on at challenging times. Be like, you know, you're our top priority. If something comes up, bring it up. We're going we're gonna to treat you. We're going to focus on you first. And we lived our values that way. So we took a 35 to 40% revenue hit. And then in the past year, we recovered that and grew 65%. Well, that's incredible. And so what are, I mean, that must put such demands on you, your executive team, uh, uh, and people all the way down the chain of command. How are people dealing with that? I and mean, what's your strategy to avoid burnout while keeping everyone and yourself performing at that level? I don't think we did as good a job as we could have last year, very honestly. And I think having to be in a remote environment, when we hit the last two weeks of last year, people were exhausted. People were exhausted. The amount of growth we've had, you know, going from that 250 to what, like 530 now, right, in a year, like that's extraordinary stress. Compounding all those things, we just didn't, we didn't get it right. And we had a lot of team members that were struggling. So here's what we did. We just said, sorry. And we said, we can do better. And this year, when we set our OKRs, my favorite OKR this year is every manager at the company is responsible for making sure they create space and proactively uh, ensure every one of their team members takes their PTO. So like we have energy, we are like having debates about how we can make sure people have time to take off, like true health and wellness space. And that sounds like, it sounds like a simple thing. You know, my experience, I've been doing this for 27 years and, uh, you know, I deal with a lot of CEOs and most of them, no disrespect intended, are saying more, better, faster, more, better, faster, more, better, faster. And that you nailed it, right? And that's it. We look since the eight, since the mid eighties, we've been on an efficiency and productivity tear, right? With none of that value going back to the team members, and it's broken. It's just broken, and it's unsustainable. And we are in the people business. We're not a software company. Our business, the reason companies hire us, because of our people. So if we don't treat them. I don't know, the way they deserve, it's going to break. It's going to break. And so I like, I am super proud of that. Like, how do you avoid burnout discussion? And we're relentless about it. I am relentless about it with my, with my direct reports every week. I ask every one-on-one, -on -one I, I have three questions. The first question, how is your team doing? What do they need to be happy, healthy, and successful? The second question, what are your clients, how are your clients doing, internal and external? What do they need to be happy, healthy, and successful? First question usually takes 10 minutes. Second question gets 10 minutes. If you do that right, this team that we have that has such incredible integrity 
just feels relieved that they have given me a to-do list for all those things. The last five minutes is the last question. How are you doing? What do you need to be happy, healthy, and successful? And the stuff you start getting when you push on it every week is like, hey, this team member, can we buy that team member a bike? He hasn't left his apartment in like six months. Like, yeah. This team member has COVID in their house. Can we give them space? Yeah. What do we give them space? These team members are working so hard. We need to send them vitamins. This is like a, this is a boss telling me, I want to send a care package to their team of vitamins. Yes. Let's do it. We can sponsor. It's amazing. Like what bubbles up when you have this structured conversation and you make it in that order and people, people don't like talking about themselves about what they need, but once they've covered, they feel like they've spoken on behalf of their team, spoken on behalf of their clients. They like shoulders drop and they soften. And then you ask them like, yo, what do you need? They, they'll answer you. I, I, I think you're right about that. But, and I wonder if part of it is that you're having this conversation, not just once, it's not a special occasion, but you're having this conversation over and over again. And uh, you're returning to these themes over and over again. And so you can avoid the, the risk of it seeming like a gesture or, you know, and, and they can see and feel and, uh, that it's authentic. As long as you follow up on it. So like, you know, this is, I tell the team, you're making my to-do list. Like when you say my team needs this, it's on my to-do list. When you say my clients need this, it's on my to-do list. If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then, then it feels like a gesture. So it should become this accountability this sort of flywheel of accountability um, and progress. Yeah. Like I, it's my hope, but the truth is like, I don't know, like some people don't, some people still don't believe it. Some people are cynical. They're like, yeah, he doesn't really want to hear it. And that like, that breaks my heart. And so we're leaning harder into like, how do I, I really want to hear what's going on. And so we're, we're helping people unlearn and, and get accustomed to it. And it, it does take time to build trust and confidence. And I think, um, you know, it's not about putting your foot down or about proving that you're Mother Teresa. It's, it's more about the relentless, consistent, patient, thorough, uh, almost turning yourself into a broken record that these are our priorities. And look, you know, there are plenty of CEOs who turn themselves into a broken record about more, better, faster. Uh, so no reason you can't turn yourself into a broken record about what do you need? Uh, Bruce, that's, that's very well put. If I'm going to be a broken record about anything, I think that's, uh, that's the broken record I want to be. That's what I want to play, right? What do you need? That's, that's even simpler. I love that. It's true. And, and um, it sounds like your leadership style is uh, all about tuning into other people. And, what, and, and I know that you uh, place a high value on asking the right questions. And, and I'm guessing that that's not just with your direct reports, but maybe in skip level conversations and also with your clients and customers. And um, probably that's your style in general. Uh, would you, how, where would you put that, the, the power of, of asking the right questions? I mean, it's the most, I think it's the most important thing. You know, I learned that there's an organization called the Right Question Institute. They're, you know, they're, they're based up uh, in Cambridge. The founders, um, Dan and Luce, 
are experts in this idea of like asking the right questions. And I've, I've had the good fortune for me uh, of understanding some of their, their instincts around questions. And I just more and more believe what you can get to with a beautiful question and a great question is so much more powerful than what you can get with a directive. And sometimes just asking the question, if you want to, look, if you want to get work done, you have to be directive. So when we're in emergency situations, we've had like six, seven emergency situations, natural disasters, COVID, where I, you know, my FEMA hat kicks in and I end up being super like just very clear and directive. People call me Harvey Keitel the wolf from Pulp Fiction. They're like, I have a shirt that has like the license plate on it because I'm like that. Sometimes you just got to be the wolf. Um, but if you want to scale, you scale with questions. And that's that's the key. So I it depends on the situation, but I love questions. And I think why, like you hear uh, Simon Sinek, you know, start with why and all that stuff. Like why is why is the most important question? I get it, right? Why is the most important question? But uh, to me, the most powerful question is how. So for example, you know, we, in the Philippines, there's uh, COVID spikes, they're back into quarantine. It's like 2020 all over again. And we've got some clients who, you know, need people to, you know, we're in the office and we need people to be working remotely. And the question we're asking is, how do we get people to work from home? That's the question that, that, that people are asking. And what I posited to the team yesterday was that's not the right question. The right question is not how can we work from home? The right question is how can we get work done not from this office? What does that do? All of a sudden you're like, huh, are there co-working spaces closer to people's homes that maybe we can incubate at? Can we ramp up teams in other locations? Like what are the things we can do that make it so people don't need to be in the office. It's not work from home. Because when you do work from home, you've asked too narrow a question. How can we get it so people don't have to work from the office to do this work? How can we accomplish our goal? And I think, you know, uh, to your point, why, you know, of course, Simon Sinek, but, but how I think is a more empowering question because what people want to be set up for success, they want to know, well, you know, what are the next steps what are the intermediate goals? You know, what's the time horizon here? People, I think, feel very, you know, if you think about um, anyone who is setting out to do something, if they don't know how to do it, that is very disempowering. And how is the discovery, right? So why, uh, why brings you to a point? Like why brings you to a reason? When you ask why, and you do even root cause analysis, you do four why, five whys, like by asking why you're trying to get to a specific point, how is the inverse? How opens the discussion? That, that is so much more powerful because everyone can have a how. Everyone can have a how uh, and an approach on how they do their work and how they move forward. At every level, you know, people need to operate. So they need, you know, and uh, they, they need an, an instruction, uh, a set of instructions either, you know, and, and, and you can get there by asking questions. But at, to your point, sometimes you have to be directive. I mean, some people you can ask questions until you're blue in the face and you'll never get the response you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, you got to know when to switch. And I think that's, that's hard, right? That, that, is, that is a balancing act. And 
for you, you're always making trade-offs, right? How much time do you have left to address this problem? How much, you know, what do you have left and where do you have space for? And at times you have to, as long as you contextualize why you're approaching it the way you're approaching it, you know, people should understand. Yeah. So you've, you've obviously led in many, many different situations and, and you're, you're giving an account of leading um, an organization through tremendous growth at, at a, in a time of crisis. You must run into roadblocks. What do you do when you feel stuck and you have to move forward? Wow. I mean, you're hitting me, you're hitting me at that time right now. Um, so we are at rapid growth, rapid expansion, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm looking at Q2, and I'm looking at Q2, and here's our problem for Q2. We are, it's so funny to say this, but you know, we are already committed to doubling for 2021. So like it's, it's locked. It's March, and it's locked. The problem is we're not set up right, with the right mindset to support that. And we have to change behaviors. We have to change the way we approach things. We have to change the way, like how quickly we respond to challenges to support that. Because sometimes growing too fast is a problem as well because you can't keep up with the growth. You don't have the infrastructure to keep up with the growth. So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that right now um, and trying to figure out the way I communicate to the team the urgency of learning from Q1. And the challenge is most people will look at Q1 and be like, that was amazing. Like, look at our numbers. We have to reforecast already. We've blown the doors off. And my job is also to say yes, but what could we have done better? And so it's always the balancing act. And when I hit a roadblock, what I have learned for me is in order to bring people along, I have this like mantra that I sort of just beat my chest on. And it's this idea of happy, proud, and not yet satisfied. If I just, my instinct is always to be like, we didn't do good enough. We got to do more. Like it just didn't work. I'm perpetual. I don't get broken down by stuff like that. But in order to bring people along, I've learned like, again, rule of three, three questions. The first thing I ask people is like, all right, what are you happy about from Q1? And I want people to like speak, not just like happy. What puts a smile on your face? And I have a number of questions for that. The second thing is, what are you proud of? What have you accomplished? What have you achieved that you're, you feel good about? You do happy and proud. You do it in that order. People then will come to you with a, all right, what are you not yet satisfied with? Like, what do you want to do better? What are you not yet satisfied about? If you do it in that order, people will give you a way longer list than if you say, what can you do better? That's a, a great model for continuous improvement. And uh, it's, it's, it's also um, uh, almost a version of the basic after action review. What went right? What went wrong? What can we do better? But I like your, uh, what are you happy about? What are you proud of? Uh, that's a great setup. And it's, um, it's, it's very humanizing. That's, the, that's it, right? I think anytime you take those frameworks, the benefit to this is it is about the person. It is you tell me what you are happy about. Tell me, and then what happens is you have your action plan. You have your action plan for the next quarter that you wrote yourself. And if you do it right, the way you close the loop is what you are not yet satisfied with at this moment, the next time we do this review will be the things that you are happy and proud about next time. And that 
shows like this, it's this incredible progressive spiral of growth. So when I hit a challenge, I have to balance my instincts of like going in on everything we did wrong with acknowledging that I have to bring people along. If I can get better at bringing people along, I'm not always good at it. And so if I can get better at bringing people along, I think we'll get better at overcoming overcoming those challenges. Well, I mean, uh, we don't know each other very well yet, but it sounds to me like you're very dedicated to uh, bringing out the best in people and helping them. Uh, you, you, you've mentioned happiness. You've mentioned pride. Uh, your, your emphasis on happiness and, and pride uh, says a lot about uh, what you're trying to bring out in people and what you're trying to deliver for people. I think the most liberating thing for me was realizing that I'm not a true entrepreneur. I don't have like the X plus one idea. I'm not David, right? Who had the idea to start Boulder. That's not like where I thrive. I've tried to do that and that's not me. I'm also not necessarily a CEO. You know, there are certain things about the role of CEO that don't, just don't work for me. And so I think the most liberating thing for me was realizing that I'm not that. And the thing I do best is help other people reach their potential and achieve their goals. And that makes me so happy. You know, the amount of like conversations I have with people where I'm just like, no, this is like, this is what you're, this is what you are about. This is your potential. Like this is how, this is where you should be going. That's the thing that motivates me the most. And that was super liberating and revealing for me to hear because I stopped fighting the like, all right, I have, by 45, I got to be a CEO by 50. Like, I was like, nah, you know, like if I can be the wind at a bunch of people's sales, I am blissful. I am super happy. Well, and that will take you and them very, very far. And uh, you're looking at uh, over the next year, what, being over a thousand employees? So we, it, from the start of the year, we will have doubled. So we, a thousand employees is within reach, by the way, uh, but we will likely be at like the 800, probably like 800. I mean, that's incredible. And you've been uh, running this uh, show for what, 15 months or something? Yeah, so anything client-facing. Uh, so we have three partners. So David is the CEO. He's really focused on future vision and growth and actually disruption to our core business. Um, that's something I was like, hey, man, this is like where you know, your attention has to be on. You built this business. How would you disrupt it? You now have the space to do that. Go do that. And then our other partner, uh, Marie, she is excellent at anything detail-oriented. So uh, finance, legal, accounting, you know, uh, HR, all that stuff fits with her. So my focus is anything that touches the client, which ends up being, you know, of the 500, I think it's like 380 or so of the team members because it encompasses all of the frontline team members that are doing work for the clients. Got it. And so uh, you interact with the clients a lot as well? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, that's what I love about this. Um, and it's getting better because our team is really stepping up in a lot of ways. We have a very young team. And I will say without a doubt, the responsibilities that most of these team members have at 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, greatly surpasses what I had at their ages. And it's an interesting balance because like sometimes I forget 
how young these folks are. And it's when I have a conversation with someone like you, I'm like, ah, like it should have been nicer. What? You're only 26. Like, what are you doing? So it's a nice reminder to me. I just had like a couple aha moments. So I got some, I have some conversations to have, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're extraordinary, extraordinary. And the stuff they're doing on the front lines is great. As a result of that, I'm able to be a little bit more strategic with clients as opposed to 15 months ago where I was effectively an account manager, right? When I came in every single client, but it's, it's more signs of growth. The team is doing well. Yeah. I mean, you can't uh, be a key account manager forever, but, uh, but having that orientation is how you grow a business the way you are. I mean, you're growing this business like wildfire. It's really great. And I love that we, every time, you know, the fit hits the shan, I just did it yesterday. You know, we had, uh, we had some COVID cases uh, in the office. There was a debate about, uh, not really a debate. There was like a discussion about, okay, if these people have COVID, are they going to get paid for their time away when they isolate and quarantine? And I was able to very unequivocally say the way we do things that we have two priorities, team health and safety, client health and success. If a team member has to isolate or quarantine, we will pay them fully. They will not touch their PTO and we will do whatever it takes to get them healthy. And that's it. No arguments. Everyone's like, yep, we got it. This is how we do it. This is how we roll. Like, let's take care of our people. And that was it. That's a good example of leadership in action in uh, in a real crisis situation. Hey, I don't want to um, uh, wrap the conversation without asking you about you, what you call your side hustle, this dream village. Uh, it, it, do I understand correctly that you're writing children's books? Yeah, so I've got uh, I've got three children's books out now. I'm actually working on my fourth, um, and uh, so it, the idea came to me when I was working at a my favorite nonprofit, Global Giving, it's an international development marketplace. Uh, and basically, if you want to give to any cause, region, type of person uh, or issue in the world, you go to Global Giving, you do your search, and you make, you make contributions directly to social entrepreneurs on the ground to support their projects. Like kids playing soccer in Kenya, I want to support that. Like go to Global Giving, right? Backpacks for girls in India. I want to give to that. Great. Do it. Water in, you know, Eastern Europe. Like I want to give to that. Go to Global Giving. They're the, it's just the best. It's incredible. Anyway, we uh, helped them launch. One of my projects was helping them launch giving cards. We were the first organization to launch giving cards where you actually don't gift people. Uh, you don't give people a gift card. You give them donation rights that they can then allocate to projects. So we launched this giving card program in 2007 or 2008. And as soon as we started selling, the big, one of the biggest things we learned was that uh, outside of corporate gifts, the largest consumer of this were adults and grownups giving this to kids to teach kids how to give. The problem was there was no content to bridge the gap. So the content there was for grownups. Um, and it was very, sometimes very clinical right? Or, you know, uh, technical. It wasn't for kids. And I was like, what happens if we started writing kids book about these issues? And then at the end of it, kids could tell us where to donate the proceeds of the book. The first book was called, is called Saved by the Well. And it's a true story. It blends photography and illustration. And we give, uh, and it's a true story, true, like true stories sort of woven together. 
nonfiction in a sense, woven together, real photography, real illustrations. And it talks about a village called Spontania in Mozambique, real village that uh, didn't have access to water, got access to water and how it transformed. So that was like the first book I wrote. And we give, uh, we give all that money uh, to Global Giving. Second book I wrote is called Just Shoes, conversation between my daughter and my wife about putting her shoes away, like true story. She came home, left her shoes everywhere. My wife's like, what are you doing with those shoes? And she's like, they're just shoes. And I was like, no, no, no. These shoes were gifted to you by somebody. Somebody sold those shoes. Somebody made those shoes. Somebody harvested the material for those shoes. And I was like, yo, this is a book that writes itself. So it's a conversation between my wife and my daughter about the origin of shoes. And at the end of it, uh, my daughter has this realization. She's like, oh my God, they're not, they're not just shoes. They're so much more. There's so many people involved in making these shoes that I love and appreciate. What a powerful way to make um, a day-to-day artifact into, you know, a store. It's, it's awesome. And like, and she gets it. She sees the, she sees it. Um, we read it, our kids get it. And we give all that money to a nonprofit called Souls for Souls, which is uh, outstanding. They're focused on shoes. The last book uh, is a book called Today's the Day. And it's the toughest read. Um, and it was the hardest to write. Uh, it is a true story about three girls in my life, young ladies now, three girls at the time, uh, on either side of childhood cancer. And the idea is called Today's the Day. It weaves together two friends, uh, one who had cancer and has lost her hair and is getting a wig made, and another who has been growing her hair out for multiple years so she can donate it to her best friend. And it's their experience through, it covers you know, bullying, it covers childhood cancer, covers hair donation, but it's two true stories of girls, uh, one both who have donated their hair, and the actual subject of the story, uh, Siona, who the book is written about, uh, Siona passed away at a very young age. And so all the stories about her, like all the mantras, all the things, she loved spiders growing up. She had all these like mantras and words to live by. So we put all that in the book. And one of the girls in the book, it's her older cousin. So she was growing her hair out to give to Siona. And then Siona passed away. And so we were able to turn that into this story about this you know, experience. And it to me is like, I'm super proud of being able to tell that complex story in a way that like my four-year-old gets it, my seven-year-old gets it. And it, it makes me emotional just talking about it. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's, it's so uh, powerful. And I think it says so much about you and your orientation to service and your orientation to mission. Um, and, you know, for many people, uh, that would be more than a full-time job. Yeah, it's uh, I love it. It's fun working on working on the fourth one again. I, for me, these stories exist, so I'm just a scribe in a sense um, because these stories are these stories are there, and it's fun that my wife lets me like do this. You know, she's like, All right, go. I'll take the kids. Like, go do your you know do your thing. It only works with the support, right? It only works with that support. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really, uh, inspiring. And so as we, uh, near the end of our time, let me ask you, what's your, if you have, uh, an elevator ride to give somebody some takeaway career advice, uh, what's your, uh, 
what's your takeaway career advice for, for the average bear? So I have one piece of advice that I give a lot, especially to people who are struggling at work. The, the way I frame it is pretty much the same. I say, look, what would your job do to you if you weren't meeting expectations? What would your job do? What would your boss do? And they're like, ah, they'd sit me down. They'd have a conversation. And I'd be like, what happens if nothing changes? They'd be like, well, they would have notified me. Then they would put me on a performance improvement plan. And I'm like, what happens then if you still don't change? They're like, well, they'd fire me. I'm like, why aren't you doing that to your company? You join this job with a certain set of expectations about your role, about your growth, about like what you learn, achieve, how you progress in your career. How come when that stops happening, you don't sit your job, your boss down and say, hey, what's going on? This is how I'm feeling. Company, boss, you are not meeting my expectations. Let them know first. Then if it doesn't happen, put the company on a performance improvement plan. Set a time frame. Say, okay, they told me they're going to fix this. Give them 90 days to fix it. And if they don't, fire your company. The problem right now, and it happens all the time, is people keep those first two steps to themselves. They don't vocalize. Instead, they complain behind the scenes. They become irritable. And it becomes this like negative reinforcement loop. They find the other people at the company who are unhappy and they reinforce negatively. It is. It's the death spiral, right? Without a doubt. And then they, the first time they really let their boss know that they're out is when they resign. Don't do that. Talk, have a conversation and let folks know like, hey, and make it positive. Okay, this is what I want to get from my role. Is it possible? Because it might be. Yeah. And I often say like, tell them, hey, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get this out of the job? Yeah, I think that's super powerful. Put your employer on a performance improvement plan. Put them on a PIP. Like, put them on a PIP. And if they don't meet expectations, like, let them go and say, hey, I gave you a chance. And by the way, who wouldn't want to be on a performance improvement plan? It's like coaching. Who wouldn't want to coach? Right? Superstars want to improve their performance with the help of a coach. And uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's great advice. And one last thing, the flip side of that PIP is they may tell you there's no chance in hell. And the benefit there is you avoid the negativity, you have clarity, and you can start a positive job search, not a reactionary one. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, right? Because it might turn out, oh, yeah, you know, it's not you, it's me. And that's like, it's powerful. It's really powerful. And people don't do that. They skip, they skip the first two steps. They don't give the company a chance. And they do themselves a disservice and they waste time. That is very powerful advice. Uh, and that's a good example of how to go about it. So uh, Sunit Bhatt, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thanks for having me, Bruce. It was fun. I love it. It was a great conversation. Thank you. In our next episode, I'll talk with Bernard George from Ball Aerospace. He's a mission assurance manager. You know what he does? He sends stuff up into space. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking. 
by visiting us at RainmakerThinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.